Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Rizza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. It's that time of year again, people, meaning the end of the year, where we here at Hell and High Water start feeling a little, hmm, not exactly sentimental or nostalgic, God knows, or reflective, God help us, but, you know, just a little retrospective, which is to say that we're in the mood to gaze back upon these past 12 months, to review and assess and analyze, extrapolate and explicate the highs and the lows, the big stories, the sweeping trends, and the most unsettling, unnerving, and occasionally uplifting events, developments, dust-ups, and disasters of this past year. And boy, there have been a bunch of those all across the news landscape from 2021, Anno Domini, for all of you people who were either foolish or lucky enough not to have to take four years of Latin high school, that means the year of our Lord, 2021 in the year of our Lord. Although when it comes to this past year, the Lord, if such a creature even exists, it doesn't seem to have been around very much. Anyway, we are starting down this retrospective path, which will carry us through the next few episodes of the podcast with the topic that is nearest and dearest to both my and the recount's heart, and that would be politics. And to help us make sense of the past year in politics, we have with us this week an old and dear friend, someone I sat down with recently when he happened to be in New York City. Mm, well, not exactly happened to be. Uh, this guy had come to New York precisely so the two of us could go to see the Knicks take on his beloved Chicago Bulls at Madison Square Garden, a game that did not go exactly as I had hoped, but that put him in a mighty good mood. He's like cackling and chortling and taunting me, all the while still wearing that hangdog expression that is one of his characteristic trademarks, along, of course, with his unmatched knowledge of and experience in national politics, a track record that most famously includes back in simpler times helping to elect and then re-elect our nation's first black president. And so, without further ado, you already know who this person is, the master of disaster, the sultan of SWAT, the say hey kid of American politics, the truth, the light, the answer, the question, the one and only David Axelrod. The state of our politics in the last year has been rancid because we can't get free of this goddamn virus. This is David Axelrod's second appearance on Hell and High Water. The first came back in late October of last year, just a couple of weeks before Election Day, when David appeared with his fellow members of the Obama Brain Trust, Melissa Mastromonaco and David Pluff. This time, however, we have Ax Solo, allowing us plenty of time to discuss pretty much everything of consequence this past year in politics, from the implications of COVID to the Biden presidency, the American economy, and Washington's overarching never worse polarization, partisanship, and dysfunction. Everything that is, except for all the news related to Joe Biden's Build Back Better bill, which, since we recorded this, got punted into 2022 when it was supposed to be done by the end of 2021. And then, since we recorded this, received what could turn out to be a mortal blow from Joe Manchin. So the coverage of Build Back Better, a little bit overtaken by events here in the podcast, but that's sort of made up for by the rest of the sterling conversation with David. We got to talk about all that political stuff, but also we had time to talk about David's long and fascinating career, first in journalism, then as a Democratic strategist with a specialty in helping black politicians navigate the tricky cross currents of American racial politics, and now as an analyst for CNN, host of the excellent podcast, The Axe Files, and co-host of another second excellent podcast, despite the presence and nature of his co-host, the ever surly and short-tempered curmudgeon Mike Murphy. <laughs> That podcast called Hacks on Tap. 
At the end of our talk, despite its retrospective focus, Axe and I turned towards the future. Got to talk about his assessment of how steep the hill is the Democrats are facing in next year's midterm elections, the biggest challenges facing the Biden administration, and of course, Donald Trump and his party's repeated and relentless attempts to subvert American democracy and the resulting stakes for all of us in 2022 and 2024. Yes, indeed, it is a lot. And you are going to want to hear every word of wisdom from David Axelrod, a man who has spent his entire career dedicated in one way or another to keeping our country and himself, his family, and back in the old days, his beloved clients, including one Barack Obama, from getting singed or scorched or swamped or drowned by the forces of hell and high water. We face an attack on our democracy and on truth, a raging virus, growing inequity, the sting of systemic racism, a climate in crisis, America's role in the world. Any one of these would be enough to challenge us in profound ways. But the fact is, we face them all at once, presenting this nation with one of the gravest responsibilities we've had. Now we're going to be tested. Are we going to step up, all of us? It's time for boldness, for there's so much to do. David Axelrod, it's great to see you here. Good to see you. Uh, we're going to talk about the end. Oh, it's time for baldness. I feel really comfortable. <laughs> That's right. We're this one's on table. A table made. If it's time for baldness, it's our time. Yes. Exactly right. So we want to talk about the year in politics, and I figured I'd start with that because it's amazing it's a year ago almost that yeah. Biden was inaugurated. And I, I just, I don't mean to be too literalist, but he rattled, I always think it's a little dangerous to rattle off, here are the five or six big crises of our time, and if we don't solve them, you know, we're yeah. fucked. But he did, he named them all, and I'll ask you how you think he did on them, but most generally, like, have we met this moment? Has Biden met this moment? Has well, he been bold? Have we been bold? In some ways, yes, in some ways, no, but... The other question, and and I'll get back to yours, is, is that what most Americans were thinking about? I mean, obviously, the democracy issue was you're you're behind a fence and an armed guard on the Capitol because we just had an insurrection. So he had to address that. The other challenges are undoubtedly existential challenges, really important and so on. But the question is always, like, what are people feeling in their own lives? And I think that the test for him, as it is for every president, but particularly in a time like this where things feel so loose and out of control, is do people feel better about what's going on in their lives? And do they feel like you are connected to what's going on in their lives? And the danger of going big is that people don't live there. They live down here. And that has created potential problems for him. I think the answer to my question, at least, is that he has been bold, right? He's pursued. There's no doubt. Maybe, I mean, you could argue he hasn't really done much even to try to address the questions of systemic racism or really of democracy and the truth. But the virus, the economy, and maybe climate, he's done big swings, right? Yes. To his benefit or not? Well, the problem with taking big swings at big problems is the payoff is, is not immediate. Right. I mean, the payoff on climate is not immediate. The payoff, I mean, he just passed this historic infrastructure bill long overdue. We would have killed for that during the Obama years. The country really needs it, but nobody's seen anything from it yet. And that's really the problem with our politics is it's really hard to deal with long-term problems in a short-term politics. 
that we live. So, you know, I think that he's taking big swings that will be redound to the benefit of the country. Yeah. But people haven't felt it yet. And I think that there's been a, you know, whenever you deal with these big things, instead of kind of deconstructing them to their elements, people tend not to identify with it. So he passed a massive COVID relief program in the spring. Yeah. He passed the, the infrastructure bill you just yes. talked about. These are multi-trillion dollar, yeah. uh, like way off the scale of precedent. Nothing yeah. we've ever done in America. And that's something that everybody knows. Yes. We're not going to know whether Build Back Better has passed before the time that this airs and, and, and maybe not this year. But even if, like, let's imagine it passes in some form, another multi-trillion dollar thing, even if it's scaled down, right? If I'm channeling Ron Klain, I'm sitting here at this table, I say, man, those are three enormous things that we passed with threadbare majorities in the House and Senate. Abigail Spanberger, after the Virginia thing, said, Gee, we didn't elect him to be FDR. People just wanted to get back to normal. Right. And that's the problem, overreach. In this inaugural, he's laying out the case for boldness. Right. He's kind of laying down the tracks for, I'm going to be FDR. And now, these, if Ron were here, he would say, we passed these huge things. We will be rewarded for them down the line. Do you think that that's a good bet? Or do you look at that and say, hey, maybe Spanberger is right? Yeah, well, I think that's certainly true. And I think that part of the honeymoon that Biden had, short as it was, was the fact that he did restore some sense of normalcy. Yep. He is a decent guy. He isn't, you know, pulling the wings off of flies every day. So that sense of constant kind of conflict was gone. But, you know, the way you posit all of this, I think, speaks to the problem and one that she's concerned about, which is all the discussion has been about this trillion dollar program and that trillion dollar program and right. FDR and transformation and so on. And really, I think people will respond better to pragmatic initiatives to deal with fundamental kinds of concerns that they have in their daily lives. Yeah, you know, a lot of people in this country are struggling with childcare right. and the cost of it and the ability to get it. Yep. So to say, you know, we, we're trying to do something about that. Yep. I think that resonates with people. Yep. You say, you know, every kid really should be able to go to a good preschool in this country. Right. That resonates with sure, people. Sure. All of that is subsumed in the larger discussion about this trillion dollar program and that trillion dollar program. And even the infrastructure bill, like everybody can point to a street or a road or a bridge or, a, you know, in their area that absolutely needs to be fixed. But that's not what they're hearing necessarily in this. And so uh, I do think that's in part endemic to big plans that you pass. And some of these were, you know, the reason that there is a reconciliation bill is it's the only way around the filibuster. And so you and they've treated it because of the fear that the Republicans are coming next time. It's they've treated it like the last right. the last plane out of Kabul <laughs> and they want to get every priority they can on it. And that's created a lot of tension. But the focus is on the big thing right. and not on the individual things that are actually going to improve people's lives. And, you know, we'll see if they can make the turn and that enough of those are evident in the next 10 months or that, you know, it changes the psychology. Right. Uh, but that's what they have to hope for. And of course, one of the things that's true is that because of the narrow majorities and because of the ideological divisions in the party, the impression to a lot of Americans is Democrats in disarray. They can't get this shit done. Why not? And it just looks like more Washington squabble to a lot of people. But here's a tangible thing, right? COVID, right? The most, the most tangible thing. Why did Joe Biden get elected president? A lot of people were sick of Trump. A lot of people thought COVID yeah. was a fucking disaster. 100%. They said, get Joe Biden. He's going to come he's in here. Competent. He's going yeah. to fix the virus, right? He's going to help yeah. us get past the pandemic. 
So they passed that big COVID bill. Things were looking great. Right. And then we got to the summer. Right. And over July 4th weekend, I want to play this. Here's Joe Biden. This, this yes. I think, is the wor- literally the worst thing Joe Biden said. People make fun of him for a million things. We talked about this the other day we on did. another highly rated podcast. Uh, yes, that podcast, Hacks on Tap, for all those. Yes. You, if you don't listen to it, you're a fool. Yes. Yeah. Although one of the co-hosts is completely don't, incompetent. I'm not going to say which don't one. Insult, don't insult our potential listeners. Let's here's, watch, let's here's, watch, let's watch it. Here's yeah. Joe Biden over Independence Day weekend, July 4th, talking about COVID. Today, all across this nation, we can say with confidence... America is coming back together. 245 years ago, we declared our independence from a distant king. Today, we are closer than ever to declaring our independence from a deadly virus. That's not to say the battle against COVID-19 is over. We've got a lot more work to do. I'm only going to channel Ron Klain this second now right here because I don't like Ron's got a, about 100 IQ points on me and so I feel like an idiot. But Ron would say, hey, we played that fairly, right? That's the full context. He didn't say the fight's over. He didn't say mission accomplished. He didn't say we are declaring independence. But you know, David, you're a message communications guy. Would you have had the president go out and say, today we're closer than ever to declaring our independence from a deadly virus? Or is that a little too close to mission accomplished? Which, of course, as we know, came back to Biden when Delta right. came well, around like well, days later. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what they knew. Yeah. at the time that he spoke. They had always been planning on this, right? So they've been pushing toward this thousand yeah. people on the White House lawn. This is symbolically our statement. Uh, and I, I think they were wedded to that. And I don't know whether they were advised, you know, you better ratchet that down a bit because we're concerned about where this thing is going next. I mean, there was a lot of positive talk yes. from the CDC sure. and elsewhere about where we were at that time. But look, the biggest problem that he has politically, it I le- think, It leaves a is- giant hostage to fortune. And no matter what you say about what they were important about, it's like, it yeah. just seems like, why? Yeah. Why do you need to go because, that far? Because I think they had a picture of an event yeah. that would be a, sort of the seminal event where you declare yeah. your, that we're, we're through this. And, and so much of, about this is psychology and how the country feels about how things are going. And I think they wanted to create an environment in which people felt yes. better. And then... You started to say the biggest challenge, his biggest political challenge is... is and well, I cut you all off. of these ups and yeah. downs, right. you know, we're now in the fourth surge. I mean, I think Biden and his team did a very creditable job of getting the vaccine out. Yep. I don't think they anticipated the resistance and the weaponization of right. the vaccine to the degree that we saw it. Probably could have done more globally, yeah. which is a big problem. problem. But I think they did a very creditable job. And communications could have been better. But, you know, this, this sense that, hey, we thought we were done, and now we're back. Yeah. And now we're going through it again yeah. with Omicron. Right. And I got that right. Didn't you I? did. You did. Very well uh, done. Nicely done. You. Yeah. I've been practicing. You won't be on a daily show. I was in the hallway yeah. <laughs> uh, for an hour before this practicing yeah, yeah. Omicron. So, you know, I think that that is just a wet blanket. But if, if, here's the thing that frustrates me about people and the way we well, talk about politics. Yeah. It's like, you know, look, presidents don't create good and bad economies. Right. They move the needle a little bit, but they get when the economy's good, they get all the credit. Right. When the economy's bad, they get hammered. That's just reality. So, like, people say Joe Biden doesn't deserve all the criticism. But when Delta hit, that's when the opinion poll started to slide. We can, more, even more than Afghanistan, we can say in well, August yeah. is when the slide yeah. started. He's been on a downhill trajectory ever since. Is it fair? No. It's just part of the programming for president. You can't really be like, this isn't fair. I've done a good job. Why are people mad at me? Because COVID's back. That's going to be how it's going to be if you said 
Yeah, well, I'm, here, is, I'm you know, here to end the pandemic. You know, we've built this image of the president as all-powerful, yes. all-knowing. And when anything goes wrong, you know, the notion is, well, the president should do something about that. Why isn't the president doing something about that? Like the people who are against, you know, the encroachment of government and, you know, massive executive, or, or they say executive power are the first ones to say, Look, you know, we've got the Omicron and Biden hasn't done anything about it. So that is a hazard of the presidency. Every time something goes wrong, people expect the president to do something about it. And you can't exactly say, hey, you know what? There's some things that are beyond anyone's control. Right. I mean, that is not a good line no. for a president. No, no one would write that into a speech. No. So, you know, there was Ron Johnson attacking Fauci a little while ago and saying, you know, we got the whole line of Republicans who attack Fauci and, and say he's a Nazi and, and this and that. There's all yeah. that scapegoating of Fauci. It raises a question. I have commented on this and gotten in some trouble with conservatives for saying this, uh, that Republicans he, kind he of- He says with a little smile on his face. Well, there's times when I think Republican death cult is overstated, other times not. It does feel to me like there are Republicans who are rooting for COVID to come back oh, because they think it's in their political benefit. Yeah. for Because they know I mean, Biden will get punished the, and it'll be good for them. I think this is what frustrates people generally about politics, but it's taken a really grim turn here. The idea that everything gets weaponized in the battle for power, even a virus. And I mean, this is really something that should be beyond that. I mean, this should be a real national mission, but it isn't. And um, I think that, look, just to slightly shift, but on the same point, The fact that 13 Republicans voted for an infrastructure bill for roads and bridges for their communities and other communities and get death threats and get call for censure from their own caucuses, not because of the bill, but because they helped Biden. Yes. Right. I mean, that's where our politics are right now. And I don't buy into the sort of whataboutism thing. I mean, Democrats can be opportunistic too, no doubt about it. But it's gone to an extraordinary extreme on the right. Right. And that takes us to my next topic, which is that man, Donald J. Trump, who I think if you were going to talk about what led to the politicization. He'll be disappointed, by the way, that he came up so late in in the podcast. Deep in the A block. you know, when history, when histories are written, obviously his management of COVID was disastrous, but the legacy of that is this, you know, he turned a pandemic, an issue of public health where science should have governed. And, and in any other era in our time, really probably would have governed. We're not being, I think, rose-colored in our glasses when we say in the past, America, yeah. generally like these were depoliticized things. Trump politicized it, turned it into a culture war, and it turned everything to a culture and, war. Right, and right, well, yes, and we're dealing with all of that right now, but really the worst of it to go back to the inaugural period you know, we had the insurrection on January 6th. I want to play Trump, that 1-6 video, the thing he put out a little too late in the day, just to remember what it was like on the day that the Capitol was almost sacked. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election, but we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. We love you. Yeah. You're very special. Yes. The guys who beat Capitol Hill police officers with with, with American flags, right? Tased Officer Fanon. He loves them, right? This is like one of the most appalling things anybody's ever seen, although Trump has done a lot of appalling things. 
But here's my question for you as we look back on the year of 2021. Are you surprised that Trump remains such a big figure in our politics and that in some way that not only did 1-6 and all of that horror that people witnessed that day, it didn't diminish his power at all, I don't think. And does that stun you? And how can that be? Well, does it stun me? No. I mean, you know, I've long since stopped the, well, this certainly is going to kill Trump speculation. Right. I mean, we've done that so many times. But he stopped being president. Like, nor, well, like but I think he, that's, the presidency that's a, ended but that's a, but, and there was an insurrection that he fomented, right? That's a little bit of an unusual well, case, right? Well, one, let's take that apart. First of all, not being president has its advantages, right? Because now everything is being seen through the prism of Joe Biden. And, you know, they've been sort of demonizing Biden in the way that they demonized Biden, you know, incompetent, tool of the left kind of stuff. And you see a lot of take up among Republicans about that. And so, you know, the kind of cloud over Trump lifts a little, the attention shifts to Biden. You know, that's something that can unify Republicans. And then, you know, Trump has as propagandists do, as demagogues do. He's sold relentlessly the story with the help of his amen corner in right-wing media, Fox and Breitbart and- It's a big big loud corner. Right, you know, the big lie. I mean, the big lie that the election was stolen to the point where it's now an overwhelming kind of accepted thing among right. Republicans, 72% in the last poll I saw. Again, I've just paused on that for a second, just because I think like, you know, as a political insiders, we're all like, yeah, the big lie, amazing. I mean, we all are amazed by it, astonished by it, or appalled by it, right? But for like normal people, I still, I, 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 I think about this as much as anybody as you do, right? How can it be? I mean, I thought it was crazy back in the days when your boss when we saw these numbers, it would be like a third of Republicans think he's not a legitimate president. He was born in Kenya. Another thing that Donald Trump propagated, yes. obviously very effectively. But the notion that the election was stolen, that, the, that this big lie has taken root in this way, in this deep way, pushed by a former president, yes. a man who's been taken off Twitter, right. taken off right. Facebook, right. has no platform, hangs out at Mar-a-Lago all day long, and yet more Republicans almost on a daily basis accept this lie for which there is well, no basis. How can that be? Well, part of it also is that you have Republican politicians and office holders who, fearful for their own power, yes. are amplifying it, knowing that it's not true. Yes. And so when all of your sources of information, what you see on Facebook, what you see on the TV's networks that you choose, what you hear from your elected officials, when all of that points in one direction, given the tribalization of our politics, right. you, you can see how it happens. And there are examples in history of how things like this right. happen. You know, I never bought this notion. Uh, my podcast partner, Mike Murphy, has been of the mind that Trump will fade over time. Right. I've never been of the mind that Trump would relinquish his leadership of the Republican Party. And if he runs, he will be the odds-on favorite to be the nominee right. of the party. And depending on the nominee and the state of the Democratic Party, he very well could enter 2024 as the favorite. Right. We'll get to that a little bit later in this show. But I'm trying to move you along. Oh, I know you are. You're doing very well. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for doing that. I, but I do want to just stick on this last, I'll ask Trump question about this, yeah. which, which is, I think you and I agree about this. And we said for four years, you would say, Trump is not the cause of yeah. what's going on. He's an accelerant. He's a coagulant. And an opportunist who has right. capitalized on a sense of loss, besiegement, resentment. And white grievance and, right, and, right. Race, and, yes, and racism, absolutely. cultural. I mean, all, it's a all, mix of things. All of those things, right? So 
he capitalized on it. He opportunistically exploited it. He accelerated it. All of that. But if you believe that that's all true, that Trump's not the root cause of the problem, you would have thought that, because you're pointing to the real problem here is that the Trumpification of the party, right? That he has this power over people still. And if you kind of buy the first thesis, you would have thought that, like, what power does he still have over these people? Like, what's that grounded in? How can it be? This is the thing that befuddles me. It's not just that he doesn't have any offices. Like, they still act like they're afraid of him, even though... Again, he's not president. He holds no office. He has no platform. And yet they're all still terrified. Why, given our previous theory about Trump, you know, capitalizer, exploiter, coagulant, accelerant, why is the party still following Donald Trump to the degree that they are tonally, as we see here, and practically in not repudiating a big lie that they all know is false? Yeah. I'm not sure coagulant is... But anyway. But I like that word, though. I like uh, saying it. It is a great word. I enjoy word. saying it. It is a great word. He concentrates, he concentrates it, though, right? Oh, I see. He pulls it all yeah. together, concentrates the base, and then well, lights I mean, it on they fire. share, the people who spoke and Trump share the same approach, which is to create enemies, demons, to set up a construct of cultural war and resentment. And it's been successful. Yes. Before we go to break, I want to ask you, I asked you before the show, you refused to give us the one thing I asked for. I asked for just one thing. The three most important political developments of the year. We may have covered some of them already. Yeah, we have. What, what are well, your Certainly three? January 6th was one, one of them. Yep. I mean, it, unprecedented in our right. lifetime. And the fact that it has become accepted yeah. by so many Republicans yeah. is really concerning. I would say August 15th, which was the day that Afghanistan fell. But not just because of Afghanistan, but it's the day... It was right that in that moment when you saw the lines cross in Biden's polling numbers. I guess. And I think it was a combination of Afghanistan and the accumulated COVID. unhappiness about the Delta variant yep. and the, you know, the retrenchment relative to the virus. And then the, the last one, I would say, is November 3rd, because it wasn't just Terry McAuliffe making a mistake. Right. It wasn't. And I think Democrats need to take seriously what they saw yeah. on November 3rd. And Democrats are not... You know, you talk about Trump exploiting all these things, but Democrats have been unwitting accomplices at times. And the general tone of Democrats is too often one that abets the narrative that Trump wants to deliver of judgmental elites looking down their noses and so on, and who are consumed by issues that are not the issues that touch on people's lives. I think Democrats need to to look hard at how they approach voters. I, w- I want to put one more issue on the table yeah. before we move to a little David Axelrod biographical walk down memory oh, lane. My favorite. It's that, such a long lane, I'm not sure I can remember. I know. Well, we, we could be here all day. Let's, <laughs> let me ask this question because as we sit here, are two white dudes. Yes. Um, it's not that long ago that the U.S. Supreme Court heard this a case on abortion that I think your wife, my wife, many women we know, are already looking back, even though we don't know what the outcome of it is, but on the basis of the tenor of the conversation, they would cite the, what they think now is the dawning realization that Roe is dead, Roe mm-hmm. v. Wade is dead, as historically significant and would probably lobby to put it on the list of most important political developments of, of 2021. Do you think that potentially, if that's where we end up with Roe mostly or fully repealed, that it could be a thing that will be on the list of the most important things that happened in 2021? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are asking that question right now. And I honestly, I don't, I mean, it's going to be historically important for sure. Yeah. I think it's going to further balkanize our country 
Whether it becomes the sort of electoral issue, I think is a very open question. We've never really seen choice on abortion rights be the motivating issue that, you know, will it bring women out as Trump did in 2018 in the numbers uh, they did. We haven't seen that before, but we also well, haven't fi- seen... For 50 Ro- years, we thought it was selling right. law. Well, we yeah. haven't seen Roe dismantled right. before. And I, I see Robert, Chief Justice Roberts, scrambling to try and find a, yeah. an elegant way out here. But I think we're going to see how motivational that issue is. And I don't think, as, as we sit here today, anybody really knows the answer. But if you were to guess, you would say the election's still going to be about how people view the president, how people view the economy, how people view the direction of the country, and tribalism. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about the life and times of David Axelrod before we turn a little bit to the future in 2022 here on Hell and High Water. And we're back with David Axelrod and Hell and High Water. Finding old video is one of the things I love to do. And, you know, we weren't able to get anything from your childhood. I don't think there were any videos taken of you as a, as a no, child. There are artist conceptions. <laughs> we, should, we should ask for those. You guys should bring them in. And we couldn't find anything from the Tribune newsroom when you were uh, City Hall. Not that, but we could find you as a young, relatively young political consultant. 1994, here on C-SPAN. Let's play that. These two guys have basically touched on the two fundamental trend lines in American politics that have been driving elections more or less for the last 25 years. One is the, the increasing unease of middle class people, and particularly white middle class people, but middle class people generally, and the, and, and the sense, and, the, and, and frankly I have to say that in some cases the manipulation of the Republican Party uh, of, of race as an issue, and the notion that the Democratic Party simply wants to redistribute uh, wealth to minorities, to the poor, while middle class people have to work hard and struggle. I mean, we have to confront these issues as a party in a fair and equitable way that doesn't exclude people uh, if we're going to succeed. A number of things to say about that. One, I missed the mustache. Two, I will say not to be suck up about this. A lot of stuff you said there just turned out to be quite prescient and true, yeah. right? The racial stuff and the, the makers and the takers and the middle class versus the undeserving, that was already clear in 1994. Man, right. it's gotten way worse in the last 30 years. Yes. Well, for good reason, because our economy has become more polarized, for one thing. We're becoming a more diverse country, and that has galvanized a kind of a reactionary movement. There are a lot of reasons that it has gotten worse. But if you want to trace the roots of all of this, I mean, you could go all the way back to the beginning of the Republic. But since 1965, 66, when the Civil Rights Act was passed, when the Voting Rights Act was passed, and the Republicans decided to weaponize that, a lot of this has been... And, you know, look, Reagan Democrats, that's what this was about. Yes. And, you know, Clinton navigated that. Yes. And honestly, Barack Obama... You know, people think of it, well, first black president, did a lot of progressive things, but... Still navigating that. He navigated, yeah, he navigated it pretty skillfully. Yeah, well, we'll get to that in a second. In 1994, David Axelrod was still a decade away from working on a presidential campaign. 
I did work on an ill-fated one in 1988, Paul Simon. Oh, well, yes, I, that was the last about 11 minutes. Um, you know, in 2004, we won't talk about your ill-fated entanglement. What was his name? Edwards? John Edwards? But you were closer to being a journalist at that point yeah. still than you were to where we are sitting now here yeah. today. And we could talk all day about this, but I, I always find it fascinating that, you know, you were a rising star in, in political journalism. You were the city hall bureau chief at the Tribune. You covered, you know, one of the most interesting political cities in the country, and you'd wanted to be a writer your whole life. And the question I have is, what was it that made you decide to leave? And you love to write now. Yes. And you're now back in this role right. in a lot of ways as a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. What made you decide to leave our glorious, noble profession to go to become a hatchet man and a spin meister and all the shit you did later? I mean, what was the moment of like, that, I got to go do that? that? That is what people who stay in journalism call people who leave journalism. But uh, well, you're the, back. At the dark side. You are back. I, I, I Again, never, ever back felt, I lights. always felt like I had a foot in both worlds. Yeah. And look, I had the great benefit of growing up in a Tribune newsroom, Chicago Tribune newsroom, in the late 70s and early 80s. That was sort of the last gasp of the front page era. Lots of resources, editors who were just as excited yeah. about a story as you were. And I began to see by the mid 80s, the business began to shift, yeah. the, the encroachment of the business side and so on. And it bothered me. The God's honest truth is I was covering Gary Hart when he was running for president in 1984. Yeah. And I covered him, him in Iowa, and then I felt he, would, he could win New Hampshire, went to New Hampshire, he won the New Hampshire primary. Walter Mondale, you'll remember, the former vice president, was the front runner. Yeah. And it was a big seismic thing when Hart won. Yeah. But I thought to myself, here's a guy who was George McGovern's campaign manager 12 years earlier, yeah. the quintessential liberal in many ways. Mm -hmm. Now he has to go down south and compete for votes in the south. And so my story that night was, how is he going to do it? Yeah. And they had a really well-conceived plan. The first stop they made was in Georgia, where Sam Nunn endorsed him around military right. reform right. and so on. You know, he took some shots at labor, which was a th thing. You know. So I wrote this story, kind of foreshadowing all of this, and what they did was they took the quotes from my story and the quotes from the guy covering Mondale, and they merged them together into a essentially piece of porridge, a, a soup, a bad tasting soup. So I said soup. to the national editor, I said, look, you know, the AP does a great job of covering what people said that day. UPI, which was still around then, does a great job of that. Why do you send us out if we're not going to do unique reporting? You say, hey, I'm sorry, man, we just don't have the news hole anymore. Yeah. That was the day that I decided Sobering. to leave. A sobering moment. Yeah. I mean, I'm serious. Like, that would have been a moment like, okay, this is like, yeah. maybe it's time yeah. to think about something else. Yeah. So I left. And I, look, I'm, it was a great decision. But I always had reverence for journalists and journalism. And part of my job as a consultant and a strategist and as a White House aide was to explain to my clients what the role of journalists was. Yeah. You know, you talked in that clip in 94. Again, at this point, you had a lot of experience with the question of race. You said, you know, that one of the main trend lines, the exploitation by the Republican Party manipulation of race. You knew race was, it was obviously at the center of our politics, but you were talking at that point from a lot of experience because the first thing you did basically when you left, well, one of the first things you did when you left journalism was go work for Harold Washington. Yes. Right? I moved to Chicago to go to college in 1983 and watching Harold Washington in that period, 83 to 87, become Black Mirror of Chicago was an incredible yeah. thing, the transformative yeah. thing for the city. One of the most interesting things I've ever experienced. Yeah, I've been mean, truly one of the great stories and yeah. one of the great things just to witness and watch. And then you and went, he himself was a an incredible, incredible, incredible charismatic yes. figure. 
And you went on and then you became kind of a specialist, right? It was like Dennis Archer in Detroit and Michael White in Cleveland yes. and all these basically yeah. African-American mayors in big American yeah. northern yeah, cities. Lee Brown in Houston. That became your specialty, yes. right? Tell me about that. I mean, other than the fact that you had the experience of working for Harold, you put out a shingle in a lot of ways of yeah. being a white strategist who helped black candidates win big city mayorships yeah. and navigate some of the trickinesses of the race issue in yeah. American cities. Yeah. First of all, I was drawn to those kind of races. Yeah. The people you named were really extraordinary, and and I believed in them. And I also, you know, I grew up in the civil rights era, yeah. so to be a part of that was really meaningful to me. But I also, yeah, I mean, I, I learned lessons each time about, you know, I learned, for example, uh, newspaper endorsements meant a hell of a lot more to a black candidate than a yeah. white candidate, because yeah. if people were going to vote for a black candidate for the first time for an office like that, then they needed a permission structure to do it. Right. And having establishment entities, both papers and figures, so you, you know you learn to emphasize those kinds of things more. You know, I learned that you wanted to get people to buy into not the historic nature, but the the cleansing feeling that we don't have to be constrained by mm -hmm. divisions, yeah. that we can vote for the best person. Right. So, you know, there were a series of things that I, uh, that I learned. And I also learned, you know, that you want to appeal to the larger electorate, right. not just your base. Well, and part of the thing was that with all these candidates, and you'll, tell me, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think one of the things that was true, and this becomes very relevant to Barack Obama, was you don't want to be the black candidate. Right. You want to be a candidate who's black. And, and well, qualified. Obama used to say it, and it, I thought it was a very elegant way to put it. He said, I am proudly of the black community, but I'm not limited to it. Right, right. So, and there, were, there was all kinds of political danger in being stereotyped as the black candidate as no, opposed to and, a candidate And, and who's you know, black. look, you know how hard, for example, when Obama was running for president, you know how hard his opponents in both parties tried to, black tried to make him the black yes, candidate. Yes, exactly. Incredible. So you, you get this reputation for having a good feel for those kinds of races, those kinds of issues, those kinds of dynamics in both directions, like how to work it and how to win. And then you stumble on the candidate of a lifetime. Really? Is there any candidate you've ever seen better than Obama? No. No. So he's fantastic in a million ways. We all know. We yeah. don't even need to talk about it. Incredible order, incredibly smart, incredibly, you know, all of the things. And tough. And a bunch of things that people didn't see immediately. And, and I didn't. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I knew him from the time that he returned from law school. Right to Chicago, and we were friends for 10 years before he ever called me and said he wanted to run for the Senate and wanted right. my help. Yeah. And I mean, he, wasn't, he didn't just drop from the sky as the candidate that you ended up seeing. Right. He wasn't even a great candidate. He wasn't even a good candidate for the first six months of his presidential race. <laughs> yes, I'd say all, but, of, all of 2007 was not really, up until October of 2007 was not a great time for Barack But Obama. what he had was an incredible intellect and learning yes, curve. Right. And it was exhilarating to watch that process. Yeah. And he was very open to advice, even criticism. And he would take suggestions. You know, he'd call me every night when he was running for the Senate in 2004 with stories about people he had met, yeah. truly moved by them. Yeah. And then, you know, I had a little fundraiser at my apartment for him. And I think we raised $11,000, which was a lot of money <laughs> at that time for him. And there were a lot of, you know, like, professional people, academic people, and so on there. Yeah. And he gave a very kind of weighty abstract speech. And yeah. afterwards, I said to him, you know, every night you call me and you 
tell me these stories and they're just so moving. Like, why don't you weave some of those into what you're doing? Yeah. Because I think people will really respond to that. And he, and he did. And the convention speech you saw in 2004, which he wrote, I mean, yes. you know, really reflected the progress that the, the, he had The, the end point of a lot of learning. But he wasn't in that race. You right. say he was tough. I mean, Alan Keyes kicked his ass yeah. in a series of debates. <laughs> Alan Keyes, who was stone cold crazy, yes. just got under his skin. Yeah. And, you know, we were ahead by 50 points against Alan Keyes, who was imported from Maryland when the Republican <laughs> candidate blew up in Illinois. Because the geniuses in the Republican Party in Illinois thought, well, they have a black guy. Let's, let's get our own black guy. You don't know why Illinois is such a, a blue state. Yeah. But we're up by 50. I'm watching the news. Obama's at the Puerto Rican Day Parade in Chicago. And all of a sudden, there's a clip of him going up to Keyes and poking his finger in Keyes' chest. And it's like, and I call him, I said, dude, we're up 50. Like, what are you doing? And he said, the guy just gets under my skin. Right. So, you know, I honestly didn't know when he ran for president how he would bear say, up right. under the pressures of that campaign. Yeah. And I watched him grow just every single day in that race and learn when not to take the bait and what was important and what wasn't important. Yeah. Uh, and as much as anything, that process, that learning curve of his was such a joy to, to you know, and that's why, yeah. I, that's why he is, for me, the candidate of a lifetime. But, but also, I mean, look, I, I want to get to his presidency for a particular reason, because I think it does reflect on Biden, and there's a way to kind of think about what we saw in Obama and what we see in Biden. They're thought of as being, obviously, they're vice president and president together. But here's the thing about this, that even though when we say, all of the, those of us who, who watch this carefully and nobody watched it more carefully than you, that he wasn't very good in 2007. Here's the thing. He wasn't very good in 2007, but he was still better then. Everybody else in the field, except for Hillary Clinton in 2007, he, even in his bad days, he was pretty good. He had preternatural performance skills that were better than Chris Dodd, better than Joe Biden, better than Bill Richardson, better than all the rest of those people who were in a very crowded field. Although, I mean, he yes, still he was did. in second place all throughout he, it. He did. So all I'm saying is that, like, let's just give him credit for he grew a lot, but he Wasn't started all about at a high, performance. He also, you know, he was the only guy who opposed the Iraq war. He, he started was, at a high level, yes. though, and he got better. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's, that's why he's a generational talent. Yeah, yes. So you saw all of those things. And yeah. by the time he gets to the White House and you go into the White House, yeah. Expectations are extraordinarily high. Yeah. People know that he can do a lot of things, right? Yes. Very quickly, we talked about this the other day, and part of, it made me go back. Uh, you're president now, and you get something like the BP oil spill. Right. And all of a sudden, you're confronted with a thing that's nothing like a candidate has ever co really right. contemplated right. and certainly has no idea, no game plan yes. going We out. never discussed this during the campaign. And you find out that even though it, he has enormous strengths— like every candidate or president, he has weaknesses too. So here's Barack Obama in the middle of the BP oil spill down in Louisiana at a moment when people are like, we need empathy, we need anger, we need something. Here's Barack Obama. America has never experienced an event like this before. And that means that as we respond to it, not every judgment we make is gonna be right the first time out. Sometimes there are going to be disagreements between experts, or between federal and state and local officials, or among state officials, or between states, about what the most effective measures will be. Sometimes there are going to be risks and unintended consequences associated with a particular mitigation strategy that we consider. In other words, there are going to be a lot of judgment calls involved here. There are not going to be silver bullets or a lot of perfect answers uh, for some of the challenges that we face. 
So, you know, this moment of national crisis. You don't think that sings? <laughs> moment of national crisis. He did uh, press conferences in the briefing room in the White House. He did an Oval Office address. And you guys got your asses kicked during yeah. this period. Well, the Oval, of the Oval Office address was a huge mistake and one that we forced on him. And the, and the point I'm making here, I think what I think you agree with, right, is that in that period, May, June 2010, when the BP oil spill was a huge crisis, every day it was dominated the news for weeks and weeks. And every time he responded to it in any way, it was like that. He's talking about mitigation strategies and conflicts between the legs. Like, it's like a bureaucrat. There's no passion. There's no empathy. Well, we, there's we no did. anger at BP. There was a, you, got, you got your asses kicked for his lack of performance skills, which everyone assumed he had in spades. I'm just curious how that felt when you went through it. What did you think well, about it? Well, you know, look, I, I think that we should have gotten him out earlier. And we, we did go down a second time, and he was more empathetic. But, yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, he was doing what he thought a president should do, which is he was really on top of it. He was managing the process. But there is this performance element. And, you know, but I, I would also say this, because as you know, he could express anger. We saw it on the guns yes, and some yes, other things. Sure. He obviously could touch people's emotions. But in the main, Barack Obama didn't burn hot. Right. And that was a strength that yes. people appreciated in him. No drama Obama. Right. And my experience in politics has taught me that generally people's strengths are also their, their weaknesses. weaknesses. Right. So that was a, an enormous strength for him. At times, it was a weakness. Yes. So, And this was one of them, yeah. right? So it's like the flip side of no drama Obama is Vulcan Obama. Detached, professorial. Right. I mean, there's all cliches, right. but that's how a lot of people thought of them. They got baked into the narrative. When we talked about this the other day, one of the things you said was like, if you ask a president to do stuff they're not good at, yeah. you're kind of asking for trouble. And the reason I'm raising it is because it gets us to Biden, right? We talked about what 2021 was like for him. What do you think as you watched Obama and, and you learned that lesson, which is asking presidents to do things they're not good at, is asking for trouble. How does that apply to Biden? And, and are there things that he's being asked to do that he's just not very good at? And there's a way that, that in terms of the messaging questions and how he talks about stuff, how he relates to stuff, do you say, like, given what I learned with Obama in this context, this is what they should avoid or what they're making mistakes that they, they seem to be walking into these traps sometimes. Yeah, well, look, I think that there are certain things that are transferable and certain things that are only applicable to the person right. you're working for. I mean, I think it is important for presidents to be front and center in times of national trauma. And, you know, Biden brings enormous empathy. I have no doubt, you know, if the same thing had happened there and people were losing their businesses and homes and he would be very good yeah. on that dimension of it. One thing I also learned, and we did this wrong, you know, we put Obama out too much in the first year of his presidency right. because we wanted to show progress. And so we sort of made him the, the narrator of the government instead of a narrator of a larger story. Yep. And presidents should carry a larger story. And Biden should as well. Right. And I think they are using him a little bit like a narrator at times. Right. And he's not even a very good narrator. Well, that's, I think, what kind of what I'm trying to get at. I want to, let's play this, you know, it's, I think, one of the most, one of the things we'll, you know, yeah. people, still, people still cry when they yeah, watch yeah. this. Amazing grace How sweet the sound That saved a wretch 
That's 2015 after Dylan Roof shut up Emanuel AME in, yeah. in Charleston, South Carolina, a horrible racially motivated shooting. You know, this was a moment where when you watched it, the moments of rare, of, of total serendipitous, spontaneous, cathartic uplift in politics are very rare. And this moment when everybody watched at the time were like, oh my fucking God, who else could have done this no, other, yeah. than, other than And you know, the Obama. story on that is that it wasn't obviously written into his speech. Right. He was on the way down. And he said to folks on the plane, you know, I think I may sing. I think I'm going to sing. Uh, I look, he, he could hit rhetorical high notes yeah. that really touched people. And it's unfair to compare anyone to him in right. that regard. And I've seen Biden also touch people. This is kind of my point, though, right? You and I were up in New Hampshire in, in February of 2020, right? Yeah. Biden had gotten crushed in Iowa. He'd gotten crushed in February. Yeah. And we were both like, he's probably done, right? And there was one town hall, maybe in South Carolina, I can't remember where, but I remember talking to you on the phone. It was like, did you see? Yeah, yeah. It was he, a CNN town hall. He did this, he had this moment where it was like, he, I might have even been in South Carolina around AME. Yeah. And it was like, he'd done it before. Right. And every time. The guy who lost his, his loved one in, in the, the shooting. shooting. Every time he would have a, he would, his campaign would be on the ropes, he would have some moment in a town hall where that thing that we all know he has, that empathy gene, would come out yeah. and he would have a moment, right? Yeah. So that is not the only thing that saved him, but it's part of what saved him. And he had it. No, it was I mean, incredibly that's, powerful that's his thing. superpower. Yes. Where is it now? Well, I mean, that's the point about not becoming sort of the, I shouldn't even say narrator, becoming the announcer for the government. Right. That's a danger that you can get sucked into. You want to show that you're engaged and involved. And so, you know, you read through Sir Dry talking points. And I mean, right now, if you were going to break loose from all of that, the thing you'd want to address is we're, we're tired as a country of this. Yeah. We want to get past yeah. it. Yeah. And every time we think we've shaken it, we come back yeah. to it. And I think that they need to find opportunities for him to show that quality and use him less. You know, I don't think it helps him to do a bunch of right. announcements. I know that you want to trump the economy, but Joe Biden rattling off jobs numbers, this is not like the winning thing for him. He's not a good narrator. He's never been. Even in his best days, he's never been a crisp, right. clean narrator of things or a storyteller. But, That's not been know, his strength. Yeah, His but, strength has been as an empath, as and, a human. And almost unparalleled. Yes. You know? And that's a big part of the presidency. Right. I mean, it's like sports. Whenever you have a candidate or a president, you want to maximize their strengths and minimize their weaknesses. There was a time when you guys thought that you needed to be better on television. So you brought in Bill Daly to be chief of staff. That was one of the things you guys tried to do. Now, that did not work out well. But this notion of like, who's going to go on the shows? Who's going to be on cable? When you left the White House, part of the thing that, that Obama wanted was like, I need some guys. I need my Carville. I need people to be out on the cables making my case. Apart from Biden, do you think the White House has done a good job of running a media operation in this environment, of being out there in this very complicated, very fractious environment that we live in and like driving a message. Have they done that well? Do they have someone who you think like has been the media field general for them, the face of the administration other than Joe Biden? How do you rate them on that scale? You know, I'd say Jen Psaki is as good a press secretary as I've seen in my yeah. lifetime. Yeah, yeah. She's excellent. You know, but they don't send surrogates out all that often. Right. Here's what I would say. You don't want the president of the United States to be the only ball carrier. You don't want to call his number on every play. You need other people to carry the ball. 
And they've got some people in the cabinet who can do that. You know, most of the White House people are not terribly public. You know, Klain gets out there every once in a while. They could use more skillful players because I think it would take pressure off of Biden. To have to be the narrator, the thing that we think he doesn't do that well. And also to score, sometimes you want to make points that are best left to others to make. We're going to take a break. David Axelrod, Helen Highwater, we'll be back. Talk about the future. The future, 2022, which looms before us. Oh, good. Fetchingly. Yes. All right, so the midterms are looming. You guys had a midterm in 2010. Didn't go yeah. Bill Clinton, I still have the tire tracks on my ass. We go back. We go back to 1994, where we saw you earlier talking about Bill, uh, Bill Clinton didn't have a good midterm either. Right. Here's Bill Clinton after the 94 midterms and Barack Obama, like back to back. Here's how they took it. The Constitution gives me relevance. The power of our ideas gives me relevance. The record we have built up over the last two years and the things we're trying to do to implement it give it relevance. The president is relevant here. Yeah, now, I, I'm not recommending for every future president that they take a shellacking like, they, like I did last night. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there are easier ways to learn these lessons. Uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, this is a growth process. Two guys both got their asses handed them, the party did. First of all, I think it's good that I love that Clinton is like the president's relevant is one of my favorite things ever. Like that talk about a guy in a defensive crouch. Yeah. Obama not as defensive, but I, I bet you would have not rather have used, have had him use the word shellacking, which is kind of like the only headline out of that. I mean, you know, it, whether he used it or not, it everybody understood. Yeah. I actually thought I thought he was disarming because he acknowledged what everybody knew. Yeah. And Tire tracks he, on your ass, and he didn't. See, and he didn't seem defeated right, by it. Right. He was did not say the president is relevant here, no. which is much worse. And I will tell you just one short anecdote about that. We came in the day after, and he said, "All right, we got our asses kicked, but we've got a lame duck session here, and I got a list of things I want to get done." And right. he has this long list of things, yeah. and I'm like. Shit, has he not read the papers? Has he? What, what is it? What is he not getting here? Yeah. But that was him. He was always very good in these bad moments about picking himself up. He wasn't a brooder. And he was like, okay, what do we do now? And we ended up having probably the most successful lame duck session for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Biden was a part of that. Beginning of the turnaround in a lot of ways for you guys. Right. So you had a bit, you know, right. did a cut a deal with Republicans, did, got a bunch of stuff going. Right. Started to elevate and get him back out of the weeds and up, yeah. up now top. Now we had another trough in the summer of 2011 yeah. with the, the debt ceiling. Are we going to see Joe Biden in that position, you think, about a year from now? It's highly likely that Democrats are going to have a, a less than stellar day right now as we're sitting here. Yeah. Now things can change. Sure. If the, the feelings about the economy change, if the virus is truly in the rearview mirror, if some of the benefits of the things that he's passed are obvious to people, then they have a fighting chance to at least limit losses. But remember, you, you don't have to lose but a few seats in the House to lose well, control right. with right. redistricting and the historical tides. The only two times since World War II that a governing party hasn't lost uh, seats. So it would be surprising if he didn't. And the Senate is a 50-50 right. Senate. And the results of the November 3rd election were certainly a disquieting harbinger. Right. Sure. I would say it's likely that he is going to have to address that. So as you sit here today, again, it's all we can do is sit here today and look forward. You look at where the economy is. Let's econ- sit here tomorrow. <laughs> where the economy is. 
you know, we look at people, their peers have different views about inflation, how persistent a problem that is, how bad it can be. Obviously, if it's persistent, it can yeah. rise, you're fucked. The supply chain issues right. are out there. Right. There's a lot of job growth, though. So there's things that are encouraging. We don't know where COVID's going to take us, right? Right. But as we sit here today, given the slenderness of majorities and other things that we've seen, you'd say, like, it's pretty likely the House is going to be a Republican. Yeah. You think the Senate, the 50-50 Senate, is if you look at the seats that are in play, do you kind of expect more likely than not that we'll have a Republican Senate also? I think it's a closer call, but I wouldn't be surprised. Okay. So then you have, interestingly, right, Better work, going to run for governor in Texas. He just announced that. Stacey Abrams just announced she's going to run for governor of Georgia. Ron DeSantis, we're not going to see Andrew Gillum, I don't think, again in Florida, given the, some of the circumstances. But you got those three big gubernatorial races again and some others, right? When you look at those were like national races in 18. And even in a year that was great for Democrats, great for Democrats in 2018, Beto lost to Ted Cruz, Stacey Abrams lost to, to Brian Kemp, and Ron DeSantis won in Florida. There's going to be a lot of focus on those races again. Do you think, right, like that we should be focused on those races? And do you think Beto has a chance to become the next governor of Texas? Stacey Abrams has a chance to become the next governor of Georgia? What do you think? I think that they are taking on tough races. You know, Beto has proven himself to be a very talented performer in in Texas. And there's been a lot of churn in the politics of Texas. You've got a Republican governor who has been as right as could be in political direction, who is actually being challenged from the farther right. I mean, it's just there are a lot of churns. Greg Greg Abbott. Yep. But But, he's also not as noxious as Ted Cruz. Yeah. You would be anything but lying if you said this is an uphill fight for him. Stacey Abrams, uh, closer call. They're obviously going to have a lot of turmoil in the Republican primary right. in Georgia because Trump is out for Kemp. Yeah. And she's built an extraordinary organization right. there, but still an uphill fight. And the challenge for them is going to be to try and break free of any sort of national forces and kind of focus very much on right. the politics of their particular states. Texas Republicans basically think there's no way Beto could win because he lost to Ted Cruz in a year when Trump was in office. You know, this is the problem. In 18, you had Trump. Enormous Democratic turnout because people just wanted to like, do something to try to, to, to rein in Trump. Do you think there's a world where Democrats with Joe Biden in the White House under these circumstances turn out in those kind of numbers? What would it take? Well, I mean, that is the, the challenge. And yeah. this is why parties in control tend to lose seats because yeah. these elections are reactions to the party in control. And if people are unhappy... That makes it harder. And people who support their own party tend to be a little self-satisfied. So it's a huge challenge. I mean, one of the things that seem to have been disproven in Virginia, but I think is not entirely clear, is if Donald Trump is astride the playing field and is trying to put his imprint on all of these races and is clearly poised to run for president, does this have an impact. Right. He's a turnout machine yes. for both sides. Yeah, right. So, you know, there are factors here, but you, you are laying out the fundamental challenge. Right. It is very yes. hard to turn people out when you're the incumbent party in a midterm election, even when things are good. That's the challenge. How do you get Democrats to turn out in, in this, you know, non-Trump? There's all these other variables that are com- complicated. There are two flip side questions here, one of which is a lot of ink spilled lot of words spoken in the off-year elections about whether wokeness on the Democratic side 
is a fatal problem, or at least a very significantly bad problem for Democrats. And you know, you had people like James Carville made a big deal out of it, but, yeah. they, but you pointed to, you looked at what happened in Portland, what happened yeah. on the Department yeah, yeah. of Police stuff, all this stuff, right? But point a lot of things yeah. on the cultural side. Yeah. How big a problem do you think wokeness, and I'm using that word broadly, but you know what I mean, how big a problem do you think wokeness is and the, the way in which the left, the squad, voted against Biden's infrastructure bill? Now, I did not really think there was going to be a fuck Joe Biden caucus in the Democratic Party, but apparently there is. And there are the ones, there's those six people. Like, how big a problem is that politically for Democrats? That left wing and the wokeness issue broadly. Well, I don't think that the six of them voting against the infrastructure. No, but I mean, their image as being the dominant image for people of the Democratic Party. That's what people see in some parts of America as being what today's Democratic Party. I mean, I think what's important is what the party itself and Biden articulate. Joe Biden never said defund police and was very clear that he didn't support that. He never coddled rioters. Right. And very, very clear on that. And most of the leadership of the Democratic Party, right. the same. So this was something that was appended on Democrats. But I think Democrats need to be aware that those things were damaging. Yes. And in 2021. Yes. Right. So I think they have to be conscious of that. And I think, you know, we're sitting here in the city of New York. People are looking at uh, your new mayor yes. as a guy who ran a slightly different kind of campaign. Right. We saw some examples of that in the off-year elections elsewhere. Right. I think people are going to take a look at that. Look, my general view is that Democrats run better when the elections are not all about cultural issues. Right. They do better when they're focused on kitchen table issues. Right. And that's where they should be. And I think the other thing is what I told you before, which is Democrats should not be sort of lecturing from some moral high plane to the rest of America, you know, from metropolitan towers about those issues. So I think there's a there is soul searching for Democrats to do. You know, the one thing I will say is, you know, there is a false equivalence. Because all of those folks who you mentioned, I mean, I disagreed with them on that and maybe on some other things, but they are trying to promote an agenda that yes. they feel is best for their... Totally. Whereas, you know, you've got nihilists on yes. the other side who just well, want I'm, to tear it all down. And I was getting right to it. That's why I said there are two sides of this coin. So I, I saved the worst for last in this context, right? Republican parties, you know, we talked about the big lie already and how fucked up it all is. There's a, there's a larger thing, and I know you're concerned about this, right? People said 2020 was the most important election of our lifetime. Now people look at 2022 and seeing these voter suppression laws, the voter subversion laws, the way we're changing the way the ballots are counted. Voter nullification. Nullification, subversion, whatever you want to call it. The stuff that happens on the backside. What ballots get counted? How do they get counted? Who does the counting? Make that stuff partisan. The Trump agenda to fuck with democracy, right? right? And that's, the Republican Party is all on board for that, right? So that's clear. Yeah. Clear. And disturbing. And super disturbing. So I asked that question, is that like, what do you see as you look ahead I mean, it's disturbing. Where do you think that's going? And are you as freaked out about what it means for the future of democracy as I am? Yes. Which is a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, I think this is the the most important issue that we face. Look, I've had disagreements with Republican presidents and Republican politicians forever. But this, to me, is not a partisan issue. Whether or not we're going to have fair and honest elections, whether we're going to allow the manipulation that this portends, to me, is fundamental to the functioning of a healthy democracy. Right. And yeah, I'm freaked out about it. Right. If we lose that, we lose everything. 
We had Chris Krebs on this show. And Chris Krebs, who is not false equivalence, okay? And I want to frame this as this, because he says, Republicans are, are horrible about all this stuff. He's like, I'm a single issue voter, and I'm a single cause person, which is American democracy. Are you on team democracy or not? And he's not saying that they're the same. But when he looked at, at what was talked about, what he thought was coming, was that given everything that's going on, that Democrats inevitably are going to say, and maybe rightly are going to say in 2022, that democracy was undermined, whether it was in suppression efforts or subversion slash nullification efforts. And that his concern as just an observer of this process, what we saw in 2020 with the big lie, what we're going to see in 2022 is that we're going to enter what he called an anti-democratic death spiral. That again, Democrats will have more legitimate claims, but that the faith in the system is unraveling and it's, it's almost inevitable to unravel. I mean, that to me, I don't really ever heard anybody put it quite that way. Take the who's right and who's wrong out of it. That that's the one thing we always counted on, right? Was that everybody thought that our elections were yeah. fair. And now we're on this path towards the anti-democratic death spiral. That to me is the nightmare scenario. Well, and it's also, I had in 2024. We haven't talked about how malign sort of state actors yeah. can manipulate that. And I'm yes. sure that's what Krebs is concerned about. I mean, this, these are fault lines that are that through social media and other techniques can be split wide open. Yeah. And yeah, I think his concern is valid. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, the the goal of autocrats of Putin and others who aspire to be Putin is to essentially send the message of delegitimacy that there are no rules that are really that one needs to observe because they're all corrupt. The world is corrupt. Right. And, you know, we're, we're, it's the Hunger Games. Right. That's Donald Trump's vision. And if that's what we surrender to, then we will be surrendering our democracy. I have no, you know, doubt about that. I think people need to be very, very alert and sober about this. What we're facing in the next few years aren't normal elections. Our democracy is about to be pressure tested in a way that we haven't seen, you know, since the Civil War. So we agree about this. And Joe Biden gave a speech in 2021, a speech in Philadelphia about voting rights. There's a couple pieces of legislation in Washington about voting rights. He said we're headed to the new Jim Crow. He said it was an existential threat. I don't really know he's done anything else about it the rest of all of the rest of 2021. I've seen a president, Barack Obama, when he thought that the most important thing in the world was to get the Affordable Care Act. I've talked about it every day. If it's an existential threat and it's the new Jim Crow, has Joe Biden done enough about this issue in the course of his first year in office? Yeah, I actually, I don't see it as the new Jim Crow because Jim Crow, I mean, when you think about Jim Crow, I, I sure. mean, so I think that's hyperbole. But has he done but, enough to preserve our democracy? No, well, look, I think what you see is a guy who's focused like a laser on a couple of things that are sort of the hinges, the bedrock of his administration and perhaps his legacy. But I mean, it comes down to this. At the end of the day, unless you do away with a filibuster in the Senate, you are not going to do anything on this. And the question is, can he bring 50 Democrats together, including Manchin, to do away with a filibuster, at least on this issue? And I presume what's going to happen is as soon as they pass this reconciliation bill that they move to that next. But time's a waste in here. And if nothing is done, I think history's verdict is going to be very harsh. 
if we can read history, if history is allowed to <laughs> if be read. We still written. have history. Yeah. The, all the libraries have been burned down by the Trumpists. I want to play one more piece of sound because I can't, you can't talk about American politics in any year anymore without talking about the right-wing media echo chamber and this specific thing. Here's Tucker Carlson talking about Joe Biden's mental fitness. We've learned a lot in the past five days. Maybe the most important thing we've learned is that Joe Biden is not capable of running the country. Joe Biden is senile. Saying that out loud is not an attack on Biden. Any decent person feels sorry for him. You watch him gaze vacantly into the middle distance or stumble like a drunk man trying to cross an icy street as he careens through his prepared remarks. There's no joy in watching any of that. It could be any of us someday and probably will be. It's not Joe Biden's fault. He can't think clearly. It's an indictment of the people around him. Most popular man on cable television, Tucker Carlson, biggest audience. Okay, we can spend all day on Tucker Carlson. I have two questions that arrive out of this, right? So you know, that's just pure disinformation, right? And obviously with the political agenda, et cetera, et cetera. How does Joe Biden deal with that problem that the right-wing echo chamber is really big and really powerful? We see it in the big lie and we see it here. How do you deal with that if you're Joe Biden? And then the subsidiary question. There are a lot of people that you meet and I meet every day who aren't necessarily adheres to Tucker Carlson, and who don't think Joe Biden's senile, but that rings a chord for them a little bit, which is like, is Joe Biden really all there? Is he really like on top of his game? We hear, you hear it 20 times a day from people who are Democrats, who say it like in a concerned way, not like a harsh way. How do you deal with that? There are two different problems there. The disinformation Republican right-wing problem and the age competence question that is going to dog him going forward. There's just no question about it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the hazards of running for president late in life as he has. And that's something he's going to have to contend with after the midterms if people feel like the bottom dropped out in the midterms. Yeah. And, you know, there'll be a lot of talk about that yeah. and 2024 and so on. Deal the antidote it? to it yeah. is to be very accomplished. <laughs> the <laughs> answer to it is to achieve things. Yeah. You know, he's going to look a lot better if he passes his bill, things start rolling, the economy starts improving. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that he is capable of like vastly improving his performance. Yeah. And for his team, the question is, how do you put him in scenarios and formats that maximize his ability to perform well? Yeah. And how often do you do it? But at the end of the day, beyond his performance is his record. Yeah. And does he look like he is moving these pieces around in a competent and an efficient way and, and, and people can see that progress. That to me is the answer. You know, this has been Trump's theme. That yeah. was his theme in 2020. Yeah. It failed then. But, you know, it's going to linger because he is older. Yes. And he isn't the stentorian speaker he once felt he was. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything to be done about that, about the menace that is the right wing disinformation conveyor belt and not Tucker in particular, although he's horrible, well, I, but like, is there anything to be done about that as a, from the way? I don't mean like what passing laws or regulations. Is there anything we can do about I mean, it? I, is there anything Biden can do about it? How do you address that problem? Because it's a huge political fact yes. dealing with that machine that's not just Fox News, but is OANN and Newsmax and all of it. Well, and all of social media. And all of social media. I mean, Facebook. And is there anything that you can do about it? Yeah. I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but I know that we need to think deeply about it. Yeah. You know, how do you curb the impact of disinformation? How do you counter it? I think this is, you know, right up there with the survival of democracy is this question because it's central to the survival of democracy, not just the Democratic Party, not just Joe Biden, but 
you know, if there is this very powerful machine that can transmit this information, uh, you know, we've seen it in history before. That is a pillar of successful autocracy. Yeah. And, you know, Tucker Carlson is a highly calibrated instrument mm. for that. <laughs> and democratic death spiral, autocracy, Tucker Carlson, my last question, well, all these things fucking gloom and doom and dark and all this shit. But you're basically fundamentally an optimist, so I want you to end the session. Like, what's the rosy scenario? Uh, you know, I run this Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. And one of the reasons that I do what I do is because I want to be with young people. And while I see my job as trying to inspire these young people, what I find is that they mostly inspire me. And that this is the most public-spirited group of young people I've seen since the 60s. And the challenge for us is, can we hold it together for 10 years while they come of age? Can we resist what is going to be an absolute torrent in the next, you know, four to eight years and come out with our democracy intact. If we can, I think the future is really bright because I think the folks who are coming are better than the folks who are here now. But we owe it to them to make a big battle to hold this together and we need to recruit them to help us do it. David Axelrod believes the children are our future. Let them lead the way, whatever that thing is. Yeah. Um, it's awesome to see you. And I'm not being at all dismissive. I know how much the IOP means to you. And I actually find this true. I get asked the same question. It's like, every time I go out and speak at a college someplace, I'm always like, yeah, like, I'm really scared about the future. Like, in a way I've never been in my life before. Democracy, the, the climate, the whole fucking thing. It's, a, it's like I said, it's apocalyptic. And then you go and hang out with some college students and you're like, you know, these guys are pretty amazing. Yeah. Right? If we can just hold it together long yeah. enough to let them inherit and get us in the grave and yeah. let them take over, it'll be all right. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Let's, you know, like, just like we should shuffle off a little faster, right? And clear the way for these people. I'm ready to go, man. I want to hand it off to them. You're a great American. Thank you. Same to and, you. And really a great, and a great Chicago, which actually is more important than a great American. Yeah. Thank you, David. Well, people in Chicago would say that. Right. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to David Axelrod for being here. If you like this episode of Hell and High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating, make it a nice rating, in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray, she's our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender, still, we're wondering, hologram or post-producer? Or hologramic post-producer, one or the other. She's she's certainly doing all the work. Uh, and the guy who sits over her, presiding in kind of self-satisfied glory, given some turns of events in recent Chilean politics. Anyway, he's a man, a myth, a legend. His name is Christian Fidel Castro Russell, our executive producer. 